Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to take a little bit of a break from Samuel as we uh, turn our attention to Christmas and Christ and his incarnation and birth. Um, For me, um, this time of the year is consumed with working on messages and spending time researching the birth of Christ and and uh, so my mind's pretty fixed on these things, but I know for many of you and all the um, uh, things that are going on, maybe it's hard to focus your attention. So my goal for these next several weeks as we look at Prophecy Fulfilled is to turn your attention to uh, Christ and the prophecy that he fulfills, that Jesus doesn't just happen upon the scene, that this was part of the plan of God from eternity past. And so if we really want to look at at Christmas, we got to go back to the beginning, and that's why we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Also, the Reach uh, Reach Church DeSoto, Reach Church Paola, and also the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful that all of you are joining us this morning. And don't forget tonight the final showing of Kansas City Christmas. If you've not had an opportunity to come, I want to encourage you to plan to be here tonight at 5 p.m. You will be blessed. Our choir and orchestra have put a lot of work in to plan and prepare for this. They do a fantastic job. And this is a great opportunity for you to invite a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, family member, maybe somebody who hasn't been to our church before. These are the types of things that people will sometimes be open to coming to when they might not otherwise come to church. And so I want to encourage you, there's still time. Send out that invitation. Ask somebody to come with you. Be here tonight. If you do come, uh, you probably want to be here a little early. Uh, Yesterday's services were both pretty full. And so if you're planning to be here tonight, doors open about an hour before, but leave yourself some time. Make sure you get a good seat. Well, this morning, Genesis chapter 3. There are many that argue that this chapter is the most critical in all of God's word. In fact, many commentators will make the statement that the rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis chapter 3. In this chapter, we get the origins of evil, the tactics of Satan, the depravity of man, how God feels about sinners. We see the only means of salvation and the beginning of prophecy. Why did Christ come? The context of this chapter is always dangerous when we jump right into a passage without looking at the context. So let me give you the context here. The context is the glory of God and man as the pinnacle of his creation. God created everything we see. God created everything we can't see. And it was perfect. In the words of God, it was very, very good. And the centerpiece of God's creation was the man and the woman, made in the image of God and walking in perfect fellowship with God and with each other. And God gives them everything to enjoy. But God also gives them choice. There must be a test. And so you remember, in the center of that garden was a tree, A test. Every profession must be tested. And so God says to the man, every tree you may eat, but from this tree you may not eat or you will surely die. Literally in the Hebrew, you'll be dead, dead. You'll surely die. That's the the essence of this test. Uh, uh, The choice that they have is believe and obey and no life. Disobey and no death. And the choice and the test that is granted to them is the choice and the the test that is granted to us. Believe and obey and know the life of God. 
or deny and disobey and no death. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this chapter. We got a lot to cover this morning, so let's pray and we'll begin. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that in these first three chapters of the Bible, we can know who you are, we know where we came from, we can know our purpose, we can know why we're broken, we can know the solution to our brokenness, all in the first three chapters. The great questions of life are answered for us right here. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, I don't know what else we've got going on, but I pray that all of us this morning would be able to set those things aside. We focus upon you. And that, God, you would speak to us by means of your word and your spirit, both corporately and individually, and you draw us to yourself. We know more about who you are, how we relate to you, and the way of salvation. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me. Let's read verses one through five of Genesis chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but, the, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The first thing that we see here is the deception of Satan. In verse one, uh, the serpent appears, or uh, we might say uh, Satan appears. When the Bible speaks of evil, we're not talking about some abstract concept, We're talking about a very real and intelligent being known as Satan. And so into this perfect world that God has created, Satan enters. And he enters in the form of a serpent. Pre-fall, it appears as though the serpent was one of the most glorious of all God's creations. And you'll notice here that Eve does not recoil at the sight of the serpent. She's drawn in. And so Satan begins a dialogue with the woman in the form of this serpent. And you'll notice here his first tactic is to attack the word of God. It says in verse 1, Indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The fact of the matter is that is not what God said. God has said from any tree you may eat freely. And so you'll notice here the first thing that Satan does is he alters the word. He, He subtly begins to alter the word of God. And what is the response of the woman? She says, we can eat from any tree, but from the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She's added to the word of God. God didn't say anything about touching it. Now she's added to the word. Not only has she added to the word, she's subtracted from the word. She just says, you will die. That's not what God said either. God said, you'll surely die. God said, dead, dead. And you'll notice here, she begins to diminish the judgment of God. And so that leads us to verse four, where we see Satan's second tactic is to deny the judgment of God. In verse four, he says, you you surely will not die. Satan has uh, moved from, from doubt to outright denial of God's word. He says to Eve, Eve, there's no judgment. Eve, you can do whatever you wanna do, and there's no consequences. And then in verse five, we find his third tactic, to doubt the goodness of God. 
He says here, for, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is saying to Eve, Eve, God is depriving you. God is controlling you. God is re restricting you from be becoming all that you, you could be. That, that in order for you to know true happiness and fulfillment, you got to go beyond the restrictions of God. And folks, if these tactics sound familiar, and they should, it's because they are the same tactics that Satan still uses today. He has not changed. He comes to us and he says, God's word is not true. God's word is not reliable. He comes to us and he, he says, there's no judgment. There's no real consequences for sin. And then finally he comes to us and says, God doesn't really love you. He's restricting you. He's keeping you from becoming all that you desire to be. Do you see these tactics? God's word's not true. Judgment is not real. And sin is not that bad. He's the ultimate deceiver. Well, look at verse six. When, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So Satan here appeals to her senses. She's no longer being guided by the word of God. She's being guided by what she sees and what she feels. She's being guided by her emotions and her intellect. And, and, and now the lie of Satan was more appealing than the truth of God's word. And she gave it to Adam and he ate also. And we don't have time here, but you begin to see a role reversal. Eve is now leading and Adam is submitting. And you see the depravity of man. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So Satan was half right. Their eyes were opened, but they didn't become like God. They just became aware that they were naked. And now know, know this, they, they knew that they were naked before this, but now they become aware of their guilt and their shame. Sin, listen to me, sin changes everything. Sin matters. And the man and the woman, due to their sin, have now lost their innocence. They're now aware of their guilt. And what do they do? What do they do? What do your children do when they've done something wrong? They seek to cover it up. And so they attempt to hide their guilt. They sew some fig leaves together. It's a pathetic picture because it, it, it isn't really about covering their nakedness. It's about covering their guilt. And it's going to take a lot more than fig leaves to cover their guilt. It's hard to rid yourself of a guilty conscience. And that's what they're attempting to do. Not only do they attempt to cover it up, they hide from God. You see it in verse eight, they hide from God. What a ridiculous notion. Adam cannot hide from God. Know this today, some of you are trying to hide from God. You can't hide from God. God not only knows where you're at physically, God knows where you're at spiritually. He knows where you are and he knows your heart just as he knew Adam's heart. And you'll note here that Adam, because of this, it's ridiculous to think that he is hiding, that he can hide from God. But the problem is Adam is now, due to sin, he's not thinking clearly. 
Even his thoughts have been affected by sin. Sin has clouded his ability to think correctly about God and himself and his sin. Sin has affected him internally, in their hearts and in their minds. They can no longer trust their thinking. Their mind has been affected by sin. Sin has affected them spiritually. Rebellion and and, and running and hiding from God is absolutely contrary to the way that God intended it to be. They were intended to walk in, in fellowship with God, and now they're running from God. And the fact of the matter is, man has been running from God ever since. Sin has affected them relationally. You'll see it here. We don't have time, but man, prior to this, notice prior to the fall, there was no command given to Adam to love his wife. Prior to the fall, Adam was naturally inclined to love and protect his wife. But now we see how he very quickly throws her under the bus, doesn't he? What happened? Well, this woman you gave me. She wasn't even a prayer request, God. I didn't ask for her. She just showed up. I was happy with the giraffe. Woman shows up. The whole deal goes awry. And the blame game begins. It's pathetic, isn't it? The blame game begins, and and the home now becomes a battlefield. This man, this pinnacle of God's creation has gone from a a place of perfection to a place of corruption in a matter of a few short verses. How? Sin. With the introduction of sin, everything goes horribly wrong. Sin always leads to brokenness. But do you know the next thing that we see, which to me is absolutely profound? You see the devotion of God. Sin has left them in a place of brokenness. And yet God will come for them. When I was a pastor in Valley, Alabama, one of my close friends, one of my best deacons, was a man named J.D. Stodgill. And J.D. and Janelle, J.D., uh, in the middle of his career, he was a TV repairman. How many TV repairmen do you know these days? Why? Because today, if your TV is broke, what do you do? You chuck it. And you just go buy another. You wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be a thought in your mind. Well, let me see if there's a TV repairman in the... You just chuck it. Listen, Adam and Eve were broke. And what God could have done was chuck them. But God won't leave them. God comes for them. We see the devotion of God. God takes the initiative. Know this, Adam and Eve don't go running for God. They're running from God. But God comes running towards them, and he cries out in verse 9. God calls out, where are you? It's an interesting question. Does God know where Adam is at? Yes. God doesn't need information. But know this, that every question moving forward is not about information. It's about confession. It's about Adam owning up to his sin. See, before there can ever be restoration with God, there must be first confession to God. You've heard me say this many times, but to come to God, you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be perfectly honest. 
you do have to own up to your sin and who you truly are. God takes the initiative. God comes to them and calls out to them. And here is, here's the question. Why does God come for Adam? What is there? Listen, what is there now in Adam that would cause God to go looking for him? And I got a better question. What is there in me that would cause God to come looking for me? And what is there in you that would cause God to come looking for you? You know what the answer is? Nothing. So the question then becomes, why does God do it? Why does God go looking for him? Listen to me. Because that's who God is. God is abounding in loving kindness. God is abounding in grace. God is abounding in mercy. God is a God who loves to seek and save the lost. This is who God is. And I love this. To some extent, I can understand why Adam and Eve would run from God. Because up to this point, all they've known of God is his holiness and his sovereignty. But do you know what? Now, in the midst of their sin, they're going to experience an aspect of God they've never known before. You know what the aspect is? His mercy, his grace, and his love. God comes for them. God pursues them. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Have you ever loved someone, poured your heart into, and soul into pursuing someone, and at the end of it all, they rejected you? At the end of it all, they said, point blank, I don't want you. And what is the typical response? If somebody says to you, I don't want you, then typical response is, then I don't want you. Aren't you glad God isn't like us? Because the fact of the matter is, listen to me, folks, prior to faith in Christ, you said to God, I don't want you. You said, I want to live my life apart from you. I want to do whatever I want to do. You said, God, I don't want you. But aren't you thankful for the hound of heaven who doesn't give up on us even in our rejection, who pursues us and chases us down? That's a great God. And here he is chasing down Adam and Eve in their brokenness. God is a saving God. The God who seeks to save. This is the God who will seek Abraham and Jacob and Moses and the apostles. And the God who still seeks the lost today. But the fact of the matter is there are some things that will change. Sin matters. Sin always has consequences. But in the midst of the consequences, God will also Offer salvation and redemption. In the midst of his judgment, the offer of redemption and the promise of salvation is right there. And so I want us to look. In these following verses, you see the judgment on the serpent, God's judgment on the woman, God's judgment on the man. I want us to focus simply upon the judgment upon the serpent. We don't have time to look at all the other stuff this morning because in this we're going to see the offer of redemption. So look with me at verse 14. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So the serpent is changed post fall. 
We don't know what he looked like pre-fall, but now post-fall, he's destined to crawl on his belly and eat dust. It's a picture of total defeat. The serpent will now become a, a symbol, a continual reminder of what happens to those who are used by Satan. And then in verse 15, know this. God is speaking directly to Satan who is behind the serpent. So this is, verse 15, it's God speaking to Satan. And this is what he says. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God speaks to Satan, and in this moment, know this, Satan thinks that he is one. Satan thinks that he has ruined God's plan. He thinks that he has overthrown the sovereignty of God. I've messed it all up. He comes and he attacks. He goes right at the heart of God's creation, the pinnacle of his creation, the man and the woman, and he leads them into temptation. He leads them into sin, and he thinks, now I've won. I've beat them. I've knocked them down. And God speaks to me. He tells me what he's going to do. You know, whenever I read this, I can't help it. Um, you can trace most things back to the movies Rocky, all right? If you ever see a Rocky movie, you can trace it back there. But every time I read this, it makes me think of Rocky V. Not the best of the Rockies. You know, Tommy Gunn, you know? Um, but Tommy Gunn, he, uh, he's he coming for Rocky. He, he's trying to pick a fight at the end of the movie. You know what I'm talking about, Pastor. But he coming, he's going he to pick a fight with Rocky. And Rocky and Polly at the bar, you know? And he comes barging in there. Come on, we'll fight. Come on, let's go. And and Polly comes over and has words with him, and he, he punches, Tommy Gunn punches Polly and knocks him down. That old fat man just knocks him down. And Rocky goes over to him and looks at him and helps him. And then Rocky looks up at Tommy Gunn, you remember what he says? Yeah, you knock him down. Now let's see you try knocking me down. That's my best Sylvester, you know. That's all I got. But you know what God is saying right here to Satan? He's saying, you did pretty good with the man and woman. But now you just picked a fight with me. And God tells Satan, I'm going to tell you how this deal is going to end before it ever even gets started. He says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. God says to Satan, you think you've won them over to your side, but I'm going to provide a, a way to win them back so that once again, they're going to love me and they're going to hate you. And he says there's going to be enmity. There's going to be a conflict between Satan and God's people, a conflict between the child of the devil and the child and the people of God. And you read scripture you read scripture and you cannot help but see a narrative of conflict running throughout scripture. In fact, look at history. You see this narrative of conflict not only running through scripture, but running through history. So many times when we see the conflicts that are going on in our world, we look at it simply from a horizontal basis. Folks, listen to me. It's more than that. There's a vertical dimension of this that's prophesied right here. In chapter four, in fact, what will Satan do? Uh, he'll, he'll enter into the scene and he goes to Cain and he works in the heart of Cain and Cain will kill his brother Abel. And what does God promise? The seed of the woman and Satan thinks again, I've won, I've killed the, the son and I've cast out the other. What does God do? I'll just raise up another boy named Seth. 
And you go on through scripture, you, you, you read the Genesis narrative, you really want to see it? Read the story of Joseph. If you read the story of Joseph, Joseph, you can't help but think, it just appears that there's some kind of malicious force behind this all that's trying to kill Joseph. Let me tell you, there is. It's this conflict right here. You can see it in the book of Daniel. You see it powerfully in the book of Esther, don't you? When Haman tries to kill the people of God and the seed of the woman. Listen, you see it in Israel today. Make no mistake, this is not just some kind of horizontal battle. This is a conflict that God promised in Genesis 3 between the people of God and the child of Satan. And here it is, God promised, God prophesied. That's the way it will be. But know this, know this, on every occasion, God always wins. God always wins because God is sovereign. And he is sending a savior. Look at verse 15 again. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He, notice what it says there, he. It's a singular masculine pronoun. Meaning I'm going to send one man. One singular man is coming and he's going to do something. What is he going to do? Look at it here. Literally, he's going to crush Satan's head. The seed of the woman uh, there is coming uh, another Adam, but this is no ordinary Adam. He'll be the seed of the woman. He'll not be the seed of man. Meaning, he will have an earthly mother, but he'll have no earthly father. This man will be completely untainted by sin. He will be divine. Who is this seed? The rest of the Bible is a narrowing of the focus of this coming conquer, the seed of the woman. Remember, God raises up Seth. Then you go down the line, you get to Noah. Noah has three sons. God says of, of Shem, blessed be the God of Shem. Now we know it'll come through Shem. Shem has a descendant named Abraham. God says to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You move on down, you get to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now we know he's gonna come from Judah. And then there's a man named Jesse who has a son named David. And God says to David, one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and you work your way down to a, to a man named Joseph and finally to Jesus. Listen to me. All scripture, all the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament law, all the prophecies create a doorframe through which only Jesus Christ can enter. You want to know who the seed of the woman is? The Bible telegraphs it. God makes no mistake. God goes overboard. God is redundant because when it comes to salvation, you can't miss on this. Who is the seed of the woman? It's Jesus Christ. Christianity is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the first prophecy of Jesus Christ occurs one breath after the introduction of sin and the fall. Do not, listen to me, do not let anybody tell you that Christianity begins in the first century A.D. Christianity begins one breath after the fall with the promise of Christ. And if you want to go back further, it, it begins in the mind of God in eternity past. Christianity is the oldest religion ever known to man. More than this, justification by faith begins right here. 
Justification by faith begins right here. Salvation has always been by means of faith. Adam and Eve, they're not going to be saved on the basis of their works. How will they be saved? They'll be saved on the basis of trusting in God who will send the seed of the woman who will crush Satan. In this way, Adam and Eve are Christians. And throughout the rest of Scripture, there will be the trusting in God who will send forth the promise seed of the woman who will defeat sin, Satan, and death, and he will restore man. And then here's the next question. How will he defeat Satan? If he's going to defeat Satan, how will he defeat Satan? Well, he tells us here, he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. Now listen to me. You can't have a crushed heel and a crushed head without blood. There's a powerful picture of the gospel here that salvation and freedom from sin and Satan will only be possible by means of sacrifice. The author of Hebrews said it this way, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That victory will only be possible on the basis of the blood shedding of the seed of the woman. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the narrative of sacrifice as the only means of salvation and freedom. You remember when Abraham takes Isaac up onto the mountain? And Isaac says to Abraham, his dad, Dad, I see the wood, the fire. But where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. And God does provide a ram in the thicket. But that question is the overriding question of the entirety of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? In fact, when God is leading Israel out of the Egyptian bondage, you remember, he has them take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorposts of their house. Why? Listen to me. You do not need the blood of a lamb to get a million people out of Egypt. So what is God doing? God is teaching the nation of Israel that someone has to die. Blood must be shed. It's a picture of Isaiah 53 that is a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. That what we need is a leader, a savior, who is God, who is the seed of the woman, who will lay down his life and crush Satan's head. It's why it's so powerful when John the Baptist in his ministry out on the horizon sees Jesus coming and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God. The question of the Old Testament from Abraham and Isaac on is where is the Lamb? And John the Baptist says there he is. Where does it begin? It begins right here in Genesis 3. Right here in the beginning of God's judgment towards sin and Satan, we find God's message of hope and freedom and redemption. And then God pronounces judgment on the man and the woman. But I want you to look down for the purpose of time. Look down to verse 21, just very briefly. Look down to verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Skins. How do you get skins? How do you get the skins of an animal? In order to have skins of an animal, something has to die. And don't miss this. This is a picture that you can't miss. Do you remember what God told them? God told them, if you eat of the tree, what will happen? Dead, dead. God wants to be very clear. You eat, surely die. Dead, dead. I think in this moment, do you know what I think they're thinking? We're done. We did what we weren't supposed to do. And now we're going to die. 
And yet, you know what God does? I don't think God says a word. He goes over and gets a lamb. And remember, this is a couple that's never seen death before. They've never seen the shedding of blood. And the blood of that lamb begins to flow. And I can't imagine the immense sorrow that must have come over Adam and Eve as they begin to think, that should be us. That lamb did nothing wrong. We are the ones that should die. And God is teaching Adam and Eve where there is sin, there must be justice. That I can't overlook sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. Sin always has consequences. But what he's saying in Genesis 3.15, that I love you and I'm going to send someone who's going to shed his blood for your sins and by faith in him, in, in faith in his life and in his death, his blood will cover your sins so that you can have a relationship with me. And then look at verse 22. It says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's interesting. God says they become like us. That the man and the woman now understand both good and evil. He, he understands sin. He has an understanding of something that he was uh, not intended to even know. He's become versed in, in evil. And now, now he can live in immortality. If he stays in the garden, he's got access to the tree of life. He can live in immortality. Now here's the question. Is immortality a good thing? Be careful. It depends on which body you're talking about. Um, Pre-fall, immortality for Adam and Eve was a good thing. Post-fall. How many of you want to live forever in your current decaying body here in Lenexa, Kansas? I don't know about you, but I'm hoping in a Savior that my citizenship is in heaven from which I eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of my humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. I'm trusting the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and hoping for a glorious, redeemed body with God forever in heaven. So immortality for them in this post-fallen state was not a good thing. And so right here we see that Adam and Eve are going to have to die in faith. Adam will go to the grave just like you and me, trusting in what he has not completely seen. Death is the last great step of faith. Our faith is clearer than Adam's was. Adam was trusting to see the woman. We now know him by name, don't we? But we still trust in him by faith at the moment of death, don't we? That he'll not leave us, that as he said in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go away to prepare a place for you. If I go away to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you to myself. Isn't that good news today? When he says, I I go away, I'll come again to receive you, that's not talking about the second coming. Do you know what that's talking about? That means, folks, listen to me. This is too good to pass up. That means at the moment of your passing, Christ will come to you personally and lead you home. We take that last step of faith and Jesus comes to us and takes us by the hand and says, it's time to go home. That's good news. Look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of Eden, uh, the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice the picture here. God drives them out. God drives them out, meaning they don't just go out willingly. They're driven out. Can you just imagine Adam pleading with God? God, can I just stay at the back of the garden? God, I I promise I'll get it right this time. But God drives them out because the picture is clear. Adam, you can't go back. And God sets up a guard. There's cherubim, these angels with these flaming swords. The picture is that no one can come to God on the basis of their own merit. That there's only one way back to God, and it's trusting in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Let me be as clear as I can possibly be this morning on the basis of God's word. Christianity is the only means of salvation. That's it. God has provided one way. It's the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And any other way is met with death and ultimately with hell. And there's a sad picture at the end. Adam and Eve are walking away from the garden as a result of their own sin. And there's no more pictures of them walking in fellowship with God. Can you imagine this? That what we get from this on the basis of what God gives us here is that every morning, Adam would have an opportunity to take a walk with God. I bet you my favorite time of the day is to get up first thing in the morning and open my Bible with a cup of coffee. You got to have an addictive substance to keep you going. A cup of coffee in the Word of God. And I'm just longing to hear God's voice. We walk by faith. We look through a glass dimly. Can you imagine the opportunity to personally walk with God every morning? But sin has broken that relationship. Adam's not going to take any more of those walks, but he's, he's going to have to walk like you and I. He's going to have to walk by faith. Will he trust in God's word? And will he trust in God's salvation? Or will he continue to listen to the voice of Satan? And the same question applies to you and me. Folks, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all have sin in our past. We all have regrets in our past. We all have things we wish we could go back and undo. 
But listen to me today. The reality is we can't go back any more than Adam and Eve could go back to the garden and change their actions. But the good news is God does not leave us in a place of despair and brokenness. He provides a way back to him through the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ, and he says to to all of us, come to me. There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's mercy. Come to me, walk with me. And at the end of it all, by means of this salvation that was in the mind of God before eternity passed, you want to know the beauty of this is? God will ultimately restore us back to a place that is better than Eden. Listen, only God does this kind of stuff. I'll allow it to be broken, and I'll make it back better than it ever was. And it's available to all of us on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. God did all the work because he knew you couldn't get back to him on your own. So he sent his son, the seed of the woman. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because of the work of Satan and the fall of man, we were broken. But God still loved us. An illustration of this, it's one of my favorite stories. You've probably heard it, me tell it before, but bear with me, I'm gonna tell it again. Little boy that had a, a desire to build a little sailboat. He's going to build himself a little sailboat. And he got in the garage and he got some wood that his dad had given him. And he went to crafting this sailboat. It was amazing, intricate. He spent months making this thing until it was perfect. Had the mast and the sail. He put his name on the side. He painted it beautifully. And when he was done, he took it out to the lake that was near their home. And he was going to sail it out on the lake. And he tethered himself to the boat with a little string and he put it out, and it was just beautiful. He's out there, he's letting out the string, and it's going out on this lake. And he was so enamored with watching his boat that he didn't see the, the storm that was approaching behind him. And before he knew it, the winds had begun to gust, and the waves were turning. And he tried to pull that boat back in, but before he could get it back in, the string broke. And he lost his boat. Storm passed, he looked along the shoreline, never could find it. Till a few weeks later, he was with his mom on the other side of the lake at a little pawn shop. He goes into the store and then all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eyes, he sees it. It's his boat. Only it's in bad shape now. The mast is broken, the sail is torn, the paint is chipped. You can barely see his name, his image on it. But it was his boat. He goes to the store owner and he asks for the price more than he had. He went back home, sold everything he had, emptied his piggy bank, and went back, laid down the price. He took that boat and he left the store and he said, twice you were mine. I made you. I lost you. I found you. 
I bought you. Folks, that's us. God made us in his image. And he lost us because of the fall of man. And boy, we got beaten up by life, didn't we? Sin marred our lives. It marred the image of God on our lives. But God loved us. And he loved us so much that he paid the price in the sending of his son who came and lived and died and shed his blood in accordance with God's word in order to redeem you, in order to purchase you. And now, he says of you, twice you are mine. I made you, I lost you, I found you, I bought you. Do you know that salvation and redemption today? It's available. The ability to be restored back, the only solution to the brokenness of your life, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Father, we thank you so much for your love. God, we, we look at our lives and we, we all realize that in the sinfulness of our lives, we are broken. The psalmist says, when I consider the heavens, the works of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what... What is man that you take thought of him? David looked at your creation, looked at the stars, and then looked at his own life and said, why would you even want me? Why would you even think about me? The fact of the matter is, God didn't just think about us. He loved us and he did something. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins to redeem us to draw us back unto himself. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, doesn't know your salvation, doesn't know your redemption, I pray that you would convict them of the depth of their sin. We've all sinned. We're all broken. But more than this, I pray that you would show them the beauty of the salvation that you have provided in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who came for them. And Lord, I pray in light of what you've done, they lay down their life They trust in you, and they know your salvation, your redemption, your freedom, your forgiveness, the promise that you'll be with them, and you'll be with them forever. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.